Well, dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. So Dr. Ferdy, Gerhard Ferdy was my advisor and he was one of my professors at seminary and he talked about the two-edged sword of the gospel. There's two edges to it and we hear it in the, in the gospel reading that I, which I just shared with you from, from the gospel of John. And it, uh, it's this notion that if we've been set free, well, that we need to be set free, right? That if we've been held captive by sin, well, that means we need someone to free us. So the, the one side of the gospel is that it cuts. It's a reminder that we're indeed captive, that we are slaves, or as it says in Paul's letters, we are dead in our trespass. We are dead in our sin. And what can dead people do for themselves? Absolutely nothing. So the hard part of the gospel is that, in fact, we need the gospel. And I love the response by those that had believed in Jesus. These are people that are part of the community. They're coming to church on Sunday, right? Except it would have been Saturday, but work with me here. And they don't like it. And somehow they've managed to convince themselves that not only are they not captive to sin, but they've never been slaves to anyone passing over about a thousand years of history. Let me think. They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Assyria. They were slaves in Babylon. And oh, by the way, and what about those Roman soldiers outside the synagogue door? What about them? Are those our soldiers? No, they're not our soldiers. Boy, can we convince ourselves of stuff? It was a very short walk for those folks in that teaching moment for them to convince themselves they did not need to be set free. Because why? What was, their, what was their reasoning? We are children of Abraham. Because we are children of Abraham, we don't need to be set free because we've never been captive. What's our thinking in our heads sometimes? I know for me, you heard last Sunday, it's because we're Lutheran, right? Lutherans don't need to be set free because we're Lutheran. It's just so cool to be Lutheran. So why would we need to be set free? The good news of the gospel is that it does break into our lives. It does, in fact, impact us. It does change us. But first of all, it's a reminder that we need to be set free, that we have, in fact, been held captive by our sin. We're sitting here today in a Lutheran community because of the work of some individuals, primarily because of Martin Luther. I've spent most of my adult life studying him. I've had incredible teachers. I had professors that knew what he ate on October 27th, right? On 1517. They, they know him well enough. They actually read down into all the... Because for whatever reason, Martin had... Martin was so smart, people just wrote down the stuff that he did. He was so smart that they even wrote down the stuff he said when they were drinking beer at night. I mean, can you imagine? 
almost all the table talks are from the table where beer was being served as the primary ingredient, and he was so doggone smart, they wrote it down what he said. But he was this amazing individual who, in fact, was captive to sin. And he had grown up in a church in a community that believed in their bones that you had to do something to be worthy. And so his father had wanted him to go to the university to become a lawyer, and on the way back to school, he encounters a thunderstorm, and he's terrified, and he cries out. He knows he's going to die. Cries out to St. Anne to save me. I promise I'll become a monk. And all that happens. His father is furious with him and doesn't speak to him for a number of years. But he goes off into the monastery, and the priests there discover this student and they go, we would like you to study for the priesthood. But again, he's living in a world where he's got to do something to make God love him. So the night before his ordination is spent laying face down on top of a tomb in the chancel in which his ordination will take place. It's cold. He's only wearing a loincloth. And he is, in fact, not just that night, but night after night, day after day, he is wrecking his health which in many ways will impact the rest of his life, attempting to do enough to get God to love him. There needs to be something that he can do to make himself worthy of being forgiven, to finally hear the good news. So he becomes a priest, and they invite him to have a master's degree, and he studies into that. And now we would like you to be a teacher of the church. We want you to get a PhD. And as a part of that, in 1510, as a reward for his studies and for his good work, he has gifted a pilgrimage to Rome. And of course, he took a Uber and, you know, got the train, and it was lovely. No, he walked. But it was not what his gifters had hoped for. It becomes this very traumatizing moment for him because as he approaches Rome, here are the roads lined with people selling relics. You can buy pieces of the cross, you can, pot, you can buy Jesus' dirty diaper, guaranteed it has a little certificate. You can buy Mary's breast milk. And by owning the relic, the sellers were telling you, you would get some years out of purgatory. It would be an indulgence for you. And then when he arrives at the Vatican, he discovers that in every nook and cranny, here is a tiny altar and a priest in front of it celebrating the Mass over and over and over again so that grace might be poured into the church so that it might be dispensed. Here's St. Peter's Basilica being built right in front of him, all from the sale of indulgences. It was not a life-giving trip. It was a traumatizing trip. And as he begins to teach now in Wittenberg at the university, as he is at the seminary and at the university, teaching students, we get to look into his thinking. The printing presses would run, and he would have a manuscript of the book that he was teaching from the New Testament almost always. And one side would be Latin, one side would be Greek, and there would be, there would be space between the lines so that both he and the students could write their notes in the text. 
And you can watch his thinking change. It's not overnight. It isn't even over a year's time. But from 1512 to 1517, you can see that finally he arrives at the place where we, in fact, are dead in our sin. We are held captive. We are slaves. And what can slaves do to free themselves? What can dead people do to bring themselves back to life? Absolutely nothing. So being a good professor of the church, he wants to have a debate because that's what professors do. So he wrote down his comments, 95 of them, and he walked across the city, tacked them to the castle church door, thinking that he would have a nice scholarly debate. Really not thinking it through at all. But life had changed in this community because there are three print shops in town. And we know for sure that all three sent people over and they copied down what Martin had had to write. And we know within 30 days, every major city in Europe has a copy. And it was like you threw a torch into a, into a pile of soaked gasoline wood. And the Reformation is a fire. And there's no putting it out. But then this is the part that I love. Because if it had just been Martin, well, if it had just been Martin, within weeks, he would have been put to death. There's an overt reaction by the church. Shut up and sit down. We don't want to, we're not having this conversation. And very quickly after that, there is a sentence of death placed on him. And if it had not been for his elector who lived across town from him, Frederick the Wise, there's without a doubt he would have died very shortly. But he was a consummate politician in the very best sense of the word, and he used all his skill and ability to keep this young professor alive and to make space for this conversation that was starting to take place. And then all the people that gathered around him, that, that each brought their own gifts and talents that made all the difference so that instead of being a footnote in history, the Reformation changed history. You had Bogenhagen, who was this wonderful, caring, loving pastor who knew how to take care of people with the good news of Jesus Christ, who could preach into Martin's ear this life-changing word. You had Cranach, who was one of the richest people in, in Europe, not just in Germany. And he was a painter, and he had learned how to make a lot of money on it, but he also knew how to take the ideas of the Reformation and to share them in a way that people who couldn't read or write could understand it. He could paint the words of the Reformation in a way that they could get. So that the news of the Reformation, of what was happening, of the gift that was the good news of Jesus Christ, could be shared. But then you look at all the things that changed out of the work of those individuals, how we, in fact, have been changed. One of the things that happened is he met a young woman who needed a husband. And truthfully, at this point in Martin's life, when he's about 40-plus years old, he needed a wife because he was about to die. He was simply not taking care of himself physically. He wasn't eating right or sleeping right. And this woman enters into his home and into his life. 
and she gathers it all up and breaks order to it. And they change marriage. Marriage was just an economic vehicle before Martin and Catherine. It was just a way to better yourself, that two families coming together in this man and this woman would make life better for their parents and for themselves. But these two fall in love. And he begins the thing that women just love, I know they do, husbands teasing them in public. He loved doing that, and it really had never been done before that. He loved his wife so much and trusted her so much. She's the first woman to be invited by a husband in that community to be his executor. He, she is invited to take care of his estate. That had never happened before. Furthermore, she's invited to that table that I talked about earlier. When they're sitting around doing theology and drinking beer, this woman named Catherine is invited to be seated, to enter into the conversation, and we hear her thoughts and ideas. We are here today because a group of people understood finally the good news of Jesus Christ, that they had in fact been set free. And it changed education, it changed our music, it changed how we did worship, it changed our communities, it changed us. It did exactly what Jesus said it would do. The slaves have been set free and the son has said, when the son frees you, you are free indeed. On this Sunday, we give thanks for what has happened, but we also think about what is next. How are we sharing the good news in ways that matter? How does First Lutheran make disciples? Because the central theme of the Reformation was always, always, how do we get the good news to the maiden who is the milker? Or how do we get to the one who tends the hogs? How do we teach them, invite them, share with them the good news of Christ. How is First Lutheran doing that? How are you doing that? How do you take what has been given to you and share it with those who have not yet heard it? That's a great conversation to be having with Pastor Jason. I'm sure he has nothing else to do. But it would be my question with him is how are we going to share the good news in Sioux Falls? How is he going to help you do that so on this Reformation Sunday, we give thanks for those who have gone before us, but most importantly, we give thanks that in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we have been set free. Amen.